All right, happy Sabbath again. And um, as we go into this, this is, you know, I'm someone who's, uh, I don't mind at all public speaking, but this is one of my, the most difficult talks I've ever had to give. Um, and you'll see why as we go through it. So just keep me in prayer as we go through it and, and just ask for the Holy Spirit to be here with us as we go through this. Um, good to see so many of you back. And we'll get right into this. If you have your Bible, um, there'll be a lot of verses, primarily from the book of Psalms. They'll all be on the screen, but if you want to mark them, we'll start in Matthew chapter 5. And this whole talk really is, I call it tribulation song. It's about what I've experienced, things I've been through over the last three and a half years. And um, I make it out to be a song, and I designed it, the talk in the format of a song, even though I do no singing, so you don't have to worry. Um, <laughs> because the Psalms are songs, and really the Psalms were what got me through. So um, I, I use that analogy kind of so that you get kind of get the experience of walking through a Psalm, because that's kind of how it goes. It, it can be longer, so that's what we're going to start right away and get right into it. Um, and we'll start with Matthew 5. The scripture says, Matthew 5 and verse 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I've read that verse, you know, just learning Bible verses even in Pathfinders from a kid. Um, but you read Bible verses and they don't always come to life until God moves you into an experience where the Bible verse goes from a two-dimensional reality in your spiritual world to a three-dimensional one, meaning that it actually takes form. The verse itself begins to have deeper meaning. When that happens with you in a Bible verse, when, you, when, when a scripture comes alive for you like that, you begin to hang on to every word, every phrase, every sentence in the scripture. I hope you, I hope you understand what I mean. In other words, all of a sudden, simple words that you would have read over quickly before now have expanded meaning. As you look at it and you try and figure out what is God really trying to tell me? What is this verse really saying? What does it really mean? And as we go through this, and I'm going to go through some of the verses very fast because it's a lot, um, I want you to see that this was one of the verses that somebody sent me. In fact, my, my best friend, one of my best, best friends, Derek Rose, um, sent me this text when the trial, the avalanche of trial fell upon me. And this trial has taken on, this, this verse, because of the trials, has taken on completely different meaning than when I read it as a kid or even six years ago. So the first stanza of the song is I entitled The Man Before. So in order to tell the testimony and before I get into some of the Psalms, um, I, was, I, was, I was the child of a single mother. Um, my father left us when I was two years old and my mother had to raise us by herself. She had left the church, um, not so much intentionally as kind of by default as life kind of caved in on her over a lot of things. I remember one Sabbath being at our home in Bloomfield, Connecticut, and um, two men knocked at the door passing out literature. And they were passing out Adventist literature. My mother went to the door, and I can still see this in my mind, and she said, 
and they told her which they told my mom which church they were from, and my mother said, "Well, I was born and raised Seventh Day Adventist." And there they had the literature, and we were connected back to the faith. Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hartford, Connecticut, the mother church there. When I was a kid, it was just faith. Now we have faith, hope, charity, grace, um, a plethora of Latino, Spanish churches, Portuguese churches. I mean, I've watched the Adventist movement in that area just explode um, from the Prospect Avenue Church, which is now uh, CVAC. I mean, the work really do well in New England, and particularly in Connecticut. But it was the church that really saved us. And I I say this because it, it... helps to contextualize what I go through later on. People couldn't understand why I would hold on to doctrine and religion the way I do, but you have to understand what it took to get me where I am. My parents are Jamaican. I was born here in the States, but um, if you know anything about Jamaicans, education is tantamount, and after education um, is hard work. So, you know, 12 years old, I started working my brother started at 12 picking tobacco in Connecticut. I didn't want to pick tobacco, so I, I decided I'd cut grass and shovel snow. And I actually got a pretty good hustle doing that around the neighborhood. Um, but that hard work and the, and the education component really did us well. At the time, when we, we, we were coming up at the time when hip-hop music burst onto the scene and um, the, the, the influence of that culture was pretty profound on me, honestly, as well as everybody else. Uh, but also the crack epidemic exploded in inner city America around that time. And if you, if you know anything about those convergence of those two things, a lot of young men actually, you know, really lost their way during that time. Um, there were many who thought that for sure my mother, a single black mother in America raising three boys, would raise three criminals, three gangsters, three drug dealers, whatever you want to say. And, you know, people would whisper things from time to time. But what they didn't know is that behind the scenes, my mother had an incredible father figure for us in God the Father and in his son Jesus Christ. And so at home, we studied the word. We were members of Pathfinders. We, the church was our, our, our central point. So I didn't go hang out with you know, crowds of bad kids. I went to church. Now, there were obviously bad kids at church too, but you know, it was still church. Um, and and, and as, as a young man, the only way we went um, camping and hiking and all those different things up into New Hampshire and beautiful, the beautiful states of New England and, and, and upstate New York was the Pathfinders took us to, you know, the church saved us. I mean, we, you know, we played ball at church. We did everything at church. Um, and we were there Friday night to Saturday night, Sunday. I mean, we spent the whole Sabbath at church. Um, and I can remember when, uh, you know, times would get hard. I remember once times got really hard for us. And my mother would we, we, and take us into the den. And she, was, she was a strong woman. She, you know, my, when my father left, we, we, were, we left from a very nice suburban neighborhood and had to move back into the city with my grandparents. But she was able to buy a house right back out in that same neighborhood by herself. So we grew up with a yard and a basketball court and a garage and a stream running past the house. She, she, she really worked hard to do that for us. But it took a lot. And I remember once when we were running out of, there was more months than there was money. And she was agonizing one night in family worship about where would we receive the money to actually buy food for the rest of the month. And I'll never forget as we were praying, the doorbell rang. And when we went to the front door, there were bags of groceries sitting on the doorstep of the house. That's the kind of experience I had. My grandmother was, um, and her mother were converted during the time of Ellen White. In, on the island of Jamaica, back in the early 1900s. Um, and my grandmother tells these amazing stories about being visited by angels and, 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 and all kinds of great, incredible things. Our, 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 our roots in this message were very deep and real. 
Um, and that propelled me. I, I, my mother, you know, she didn't send us to, to private Christian school. There really weren't any in Connecticut by the time it was time for us to go to school. Um, but we went to public school and then eventually I was, I was able to go to Oakwood University. And that really rooted me. I talked about that this morning, that my time at Oakwood really is why I think I'm still a Christian. I, as wonderful as my upbringing was, um, in those years of confusion and, and, and questioning who I am and wanting to be a little rebellious, I think had I been in a different environment, a different seed could have grown. Um, and Oakwood was great because it produces a lot of physicians. So I wanted to be a doctor since I was in the second grade. I worked hard in math and science so I could do that. And Oakwood was a perfect vehicle. I went through, went, wound up going to the University of Miami in Florida to medical school. Um, finished, went to residency at, here at Loma Linda, that's how I got to California. And I did two residencies and did, I got a master's in public health and one I got a doctorate in public health. So I did a pre-med residency and then a, a family medicine residency. Um, and God is good. Um, he launched my career well. I left Loma Linda as fa on faculty in, in their family medicine department and took a job with a local health department and then really was praying about a job in Pasadena. The, the director slash health officer position for that public health department opened up and I really wanted it. And I prayed for months. Um, I, at the time I was actually the um, interim medical director for the jail system for Orange County, California, which I could give you testimonies for a long time over the 11 months I spent there or 12 months I spent there. But I was in that jail working as a doctor and praying that God would open up this position and he did it and I got in got the job, and God blessed. It was like a Joseph experience. I mean, we passed ordinances against secondhand smoke, drifting into other people's apartments and condos. We, we set nutritional standards for foods. If they were going to be in our own vending machines or if the city was going to serve them, I would do talks and actually promote, um, you know, whole food, plant-based uh, as the better way to do it. I just read the book, The China Study. Um, so, you know, I, was like, I was like, you're really promoting that as science, um, you know, to, to, to the community. Um, and God was just blessing, like anything we touched, but you know, the, the budget went from like uh, $8 million to 13, 14 or $15 million. We went from like 80 employees to like 130 people in the building. We didn't even have parking or offices for people after a while because God just, every program we wanted to start, the grant money came in, the, the city approved it. Everything was going so well. And God, I mean, I was just riding high. God was just blessing, blessing, blessing. And I'd go to work and literally I'd always say, Lord, thank you for this Joseph experience. I didn't know I was still at the colored coat stage um, <laughs> and not at the Egypt uh, Pharaoh stage. Um, so yeah, he was gonna, it was a Joseph experience, all right. Um, but what I was, one of the things I was most proud of, honestly, was the work we did around HIV and AIDS. Um, and since before I started medical school, that was a, group, a popu patient population I enjoyed working with and actually worked there the summer before I started medical school um, on Miami Beach, and I, and I did it whole, all the way through medical school. And it was really nice because we, most of the money we brought into the department was for that. We started the first city-run dental clinic um, in the state of California, maybe even in the country, that was targeted solely to individuals suffering from HIV and AIDS. Um, and we hired, hired, hired. The, our staff was diverse. There were people from all backgrounds, all languages, all religions, all sexual orientations. Everybody was in the building, and we got along perfectly fine. It was like a family, and we, and again, God was just blessing as things were going so well. I say all of that in this first stanza to say that success can have its price as well, though. And although God was blessing and things were going well, the time at work was becoming more and more important. The accolades were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, I'm speaking at national conferences now and getting standing ovations and you know, there were two people who mentioned 
Um, when Obama's uh, Surgeon General resigned to get me to be the next Surgeon General of the United States, I'd served Obama and George W. Bush um, as an advisor on one of the committees. I never met either of them, um, but as an advisor on their committee on HIV and AIDS. Um, and, you know, dealing with where PEPFAR funds would go in Africa and a lot of amazing experience I got out of that. So it wasn't a far-fetched idea to me. I'd been in Washington helping out before, just going back and forth from California. People thought I could become the director health officer for the county health, health department in LA. Um, you know, and it just seemed like the career was just taking off. And I just assumed God was just all over this thing. You know, and just like Joseph running downstairs from breakfast to tell his brothers, hey, I had this amazing dream. Um, you know, not realizing the ramifications sometimes of even divinely appointed success. Um, in 2012, I spoke for the mayor's prayer breakfast, and it was, um, it was a hit. I got a standing ovation, and I, really I took my time and really crafted it well so it wouldn't offend anyone, but it was clearly obvious that I was a Christian by the time you got through the end of it. I mean, I still quoted a Gandhi, I think, and I, I think I had a quote in there from Mother Teresa. Uh, I had a quote from one of the Arab Arabic scholars. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you followed it, it was very obvious, you know, that the Bible was more represented and stuff just because it was, you know, that's my, you know, my belief system. So that happened. I, I don't want to leave before I move on in this to say that the devil will use your success against you. He will try to get you caught up in your success and make you think you're better than you really are. He, he'll try and pull the, the rug of humility out from under you. He'll try and convince you that you're more than you really are. And you may not fully buy it, but he doesn't need you to. He just needs you to buy it enough that you begin to drift from God. Right? If God is at true north, and anybody's ever taken a geometry class, you only have to move a few degrees off. And in enough time, you're very far away from the, from the original projection of what you were supposed to be on. And so I say that to be humble because people say, well, you know, Dr. Walsh, we pray for you, you're a hero. No, I'm not. I'm a sinner. And God had his reason for sending the trial into my life, and part of it was to anchor me back into him. So as I go through this, understand, I'm not standing before you, you know, uh, you know as a crusader, that I, you know, I swung the sword and, and all these great things happened. I myself was spiritually struggling when this, when this, when this challenge hit me, and it rattled my own faith to its core. In fact, the Bible says it like this about the church in our day and success. It says, and unto the, uh, the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you, spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have, he, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. God says, listen, I know you think you have everything. Your degrees, your success, the right job, the right spouse. He said, but be very careful because you may be more naked and poor than you realize spiritually. And so he counsels us to buy gold of him, tried in the fire, that you might act be, be spiritually rich, that you have real riches and white raiment that you may be clothed, and that, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. Look at verse 19. 
Verse 19 says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and do what? And this is where I was. God loved me so much that he allowed what I'm about to explain to you to happen. For me to become zealous and repent, and for me to have a closer walk with him. And I hope you get that, because a lot of people are coming here to hear a victory story. And you'll get one, but you got to understand, I'm not the hero in the story. The hero in the story is the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, this is a testimony of him and not of me. He says, and take heed to yourself, Luke 21, 34, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that day come upon you, what? Unaware. Be careful. Success will make this world so comfortable, so pleasant, that when the day of the Lord comes, the time of trouble hits, you're so enamored with the comfort of the world that you miss the signs for preparation. The second stanza is the storm itself. So I'd spoken at a mayor's prayer breakfast. It went well. And almost exactly two years later, I get a call from the president of the city college, of the community college there in Pasadena. And he asks me to be the commencement speaker for that year, for, for that May. Honestly, I thought it was very strange because I was like, I saw the list of people they were considering. It was like Magic Johnson was on there and celebrities and stuff. And I was like, why would you ask me when, you know what I mean? You could probably get somebody with a whole lot more of a name to draw people in. And he's like, no, 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 no. I heard you at the prayer breakfast and our students need to hear you and this, this and that. Now, he wasn't honestly completely forthright with me because had he been, I wouldn't be giving you this testimony. He didn't tell me that actually behind the scenes there was a major controversy boiling on the campus. And I wasn't on the campus, so I didn't know. They had invited someone else to be the commencement speaker, and that individual was disinvited. Students were very angry that that individual was disinvited. And to some extent, you know, that's, their, you know, that's obviously the rights of the students. It's their, you know, it's their graduation. Um, and they never told me any of this, but this individual, they said they went online and they had found some, how do I say this, some questionable materials with him and, and possibly someone else. And I, I'm not going to say anything else, but it was online. And, and the, the president of the school did not want another um, controversy because they'd had one earlier in the year when the teacher who taught, and this is what I was told later, the teacher who taught the pornography class was found sleeping with some of the students. And yes, they actually had a class on pornography for college credit. Uh, not making that up. So he didn't want another scandal. So he looked around. Probably everybody else understood what would happen if you jumped in to speak. So he probably got a lot of no's before he called me. I'm assuming. I don't know. And he probably figured I'm the guy that he could get, and I wouldn't be none the wiser. And I wasn't. I said yes. They put it in the paper. And once I was put in the paper as the commencement speaker, all of Hades broke loose. And it was a, a firestorm because what happened is some of those students who um, really wanted this person to speak, and this person is a leading person in the LGBT community. It's won like an Oscar for a movie that they made about this kind of that same subject, um, very accomplished, and was an alumnus of the school. 
So it made, you know, in a sense, it made sense to the students for him to speak. I have no connection to the school at all. Um, and it all broke loose. It got into a magazine um, uh, uh, for that community, and that was it. So they went online in order to find a reason to disqualify me. And what they found instead of, you know, a history of drug dealing or the stuff they probably you'd figure you'd find on someone who looks like me, they found sermons. And when they found the sermons, what they were masterful at is they went in and they, they must have listened to hours. So I, I pray somebody got, found the Lord in all that process. Cause <laughs> they had to have listened to hours and hours and hours and hours. Of, honestly, I know my sermons. They're, they're just not that dense with the material that came out. So they must have listened to a whole bunch of them, um, which, is, which is good, I guess. Um, and they, put, they pulled things out of context and put them in this magazine and it hit. Now, I warn Adventists now that we talk about the time of trouble and persecution and running to the hills and having a farm and I'm all for rural living and farm living, have at it. Just understand that with social media, the way that we're gonna be persecuted is very different than most of us probably even imagine. Because their ability to ruin your reputation consistently, chronically, round the clock, has never existed before. In all of human history, you couldn't do to someone what you can do today. I mean, you can see right now, somebody puts up something about someone, alleging they did something 30 years ago, and bam, a whole career can just disappear, right? I mean, there's power in social media. That's the reality of it. So imagine if that power was ever just turned on us, what would happen? So long story short, that was it. It went viral. And the city manager, I, I was speaking at a high-end event for a very um, exclusive group of wealthy uh, Pasadenians um, that night. And the city manager and assistant city manager were there to support me and to listen. And I could see their phones blowing up, and I knew something was happening. Like, my, in my, you know, they say in the black church, in my spirit. In, I could just tell something was happening. And I didn't know what, but I just knew something was happening. And sure enough, he said something to me that night, but not major. The next day it really broke. I mean, the phones were blowing up, stuff started happening, I was at work. And when it really got bad, the Los Angeles Times did an editorial piece on me. And they, that, was the, that was when it was over. Because as you know, the LA Times is the second largest newspaper in the United States. And again, this whole social media thing is weighted against how many followers you have. So when you get put into something like the LA Times, all of a sudden the clicks, you know what I mean, it just goes exponential now. When, and especially the way that they phrase the story. Basically, they phrase it like, this guy is a kook and a nut and should not be allowed to work in government in any scientific position. They gave two reasons why I shouldn't. One, because I believe God created the world. They said that was a disqualifying factor for you to hold a scientific position in the United States of America, in government, but in general, in general. Now, that's amazing when you consider all the Christian doctors, dentists, engineers. Einstein believed in God. So, I mean, it's really strange, but that's one of the things. The second one was, was even more interesting. The second thing against me in that editorial was that I was a, a, a kook and a loon because I believed that in my sermon, I said, I'd rather my children pray to the living God than to wish upon a star. They took that out of context, put that in the LA Times, said, this guy is against Disney. And... And you, I just want you to understand, once that happens, and I have sermons on spiritualism in, in entertainment, so I mean, you, can, I mean you, you could probably find all kinds of stuff. 
You know, they talked about my, the stuff. I, I, but see, when I talk about they never really got into the stuff I did on hip-hop because in hip, when I do that, I just use the lyrics from the songs and put them up on the screen. And the lyrics tell you everything. I mean, the, the rappers say, I sold my soul to the devil and the price was cheap. Living life on this de- level and it's twice as deep. I don't really have to explain that anymore. Right? I just put it up on the screen for the kids to see that this is literally what you're listening to. Right? So once that editorial hit, that was it. I mean, and, and it's funny because they brought a scientist on to say, this guy doesn't know anything. He's talking bad about the theory of evolution. And the scientist says he might as well be talking about the theory of gravity and saying that gravity isn't real. Hmm, I have four scientific degrees, and I'm pretty sure gravity's a law, not a theory. And I can prove gravity. I just need to throw something up in the air, and I know that there's gravity. You do the same equivalent for evolution, and I'll be an evolutionist. You can't, right? But that's what happened. And over those few points, it was over. They ran front-page stories in the Pasadena Star News for the next two, three weeks. My face, smiling for my little picture. I forget what picture they took of me from way before. Every day, uh, he's a bigot, he's a, he's a kook, he's a this, he's a that, he's against this, to the point where they ran out of stuff to say about me, they started making up stuff. He said that, you know, he, they, they, they said I said something about Islam I didn't say. They, eventually, they just started looking at, well, what part of the community have we not upset by stuff we say? He said, all right, let's, let's, let's just say he said something about the Muslims, so we get the Muslims against them. Let's get the Catholics against them. I mean, literally, by the end, I mean, everybody was against me, the whole city. Uh, my staff, the people who knew me, weren't. Even people from the LGBT community who knew me weren't. In fact, some of them were, at least one of them was very upset because we worked very close together and, and they knew me. But the people, you don't know, if you don't know the person and they put all this stuff online about you on a newspaper, people, you know, I learned people just believe the paper. There's no, there's no, there's no like, they don't vet it, they don't ask questions. They didn't, nobody realized that a week earlier, the same paper in Pasadena had these glowing reviews of me and my work at the health department around the one-year anniversary of this dental clinic that we opened for low-income HIV patients and how it was inclusive and da 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 and all these things. A week later, when they find out I'm a Christian and that I preach the gospel, I'm all these horrible things. And that was it. Now, it's hard to tell the story because there's so many aspects to it, but I knew right away I was in trouble because I knew how where I was, I knew, you know, knew the political climate of where I was. And let me tell you something, I was on my face. I was agonizing with God. And I just knew I was in the most trouble. And that was just those first few days. And so I didn't know what to do because I, I didn't have any recourse. I had no way to fight back. I started reading the Psalms. And I found that in the Psalms, God spoke to me in my trial. And I want to say this now. The Psalms became my antidepressant and prayer was my anxiolytic. I used prayer for my anxiety and the Psalms for my depression. That was literally my, my medical regimen because I would have lost my mind if I didn't. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned unto mine own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. But in mine adversity, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. Yea, the abjects gathered themselves together against me, and I knew it not. They did tear me and ceased not. With hypocritical mockers and feasts, they gnashed upon me with their teeth. 
Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their destruction, my darling from the lions. That psalm comforted me because it was as if God was saying to me, listen, you did what you were called here to do. You provided medical services, health services for people who otherwise would not get it. That was what you came here to do. And you did it in the love of Christ. You did it the best you could possibly do it. And now they're attacking you. The very same people in many instances are attacking you. But it's okay. Like David, you are experiencing what happens when your relationship with God causes people to turn on you. And it doesn't matter that you helped them. It doesn't matter that you were on their side. It doesn't matter that you worked with them. All that goes out the window and they come after you. And the prayer was, of course, rescue my soul from their destructions. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me, for you are my strength. Unto thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. It's physical when you start going through this stuff. You, you can feel it down into your bones the stress of what you're going through as your stress hormones go up and the enemy now starts whispering in your ear, it's over. It's a wrap. You'll never recover from this. The enemy starts to literally try and convince you that you have no hope. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors and a fear to mine acquaintances. They, did, they that did see me without fled from me. I'm forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I've heard the slander of many, fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies, from them that persecute me. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord. For I've called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed and let them be silent in the grave." Let lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. And this is what I felt. Paul says, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. One of the things that happened as this, was, as this exploded onto the scene, one of the most difficult parts was that there was a statement, and many of you have asked me about it, so it was public, so I, I, I talk about it. If it wasn't public, I probably wouldn't. But it was a statement that the, was released by the church distancing themselves from me. Uh, and that was very difficult. And that last psalm kind of speaks to that, that the, all of a sudden you were just forsaken. And that was tough. And, and, and the only real problem I had, you know, and I'm not mad at anybody. I love everybody. I support my church. I pay my tithe. Um, it was just that we didn't, nobody ever talked to me. Matthew, I think it's uh, 18. You know, I just wish I had had a conversation with somebody so they could understand what was really going on. Um, but that was difficult. That was very difficult. And I'll talk about, I'll come back around to what God did for me in that. But that made it really tough. Because all of a sudden, now the people who were venomously coming after me were really laughing at me. Like, you don't even have... A religious base to come from. You're just out there all by yourself. And that statement here is exactly how I felt in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16. But God it says it like this. Uh, the Spirit of Prophecy says, it is his providence 
that brings us into varying circumstances. In each new position, we made a different class of temptations. How many times when we are placed in some trying situation, we think, this is a wonderful mistake. How I wish I had stayed where I was before. Boy, Ellen White is on the point, isn't she? All these years, she, knew, she must have wrote this for me. Because I'm telling you, that's what you're laying on. You're like, why didn't I stay at my last job? Why did I speak for this mayor's prayer breakfast? This guy would have never heard about me. Why did I say yes to this speaking again? You just start, I wish I had just stayed where I was. And you start playing Monday morning quarterback as to how you could have avoided the trial and the tribulation that you're going through. She says, but why is it that you are not satisfied? It is because your circumstances have served to bring new defects in your character to your notice. But nothing is revealed but that which was in you. So, you know, and Sister White, you know, you'd figure at a time like this, that was a tough quote to get in the middle of the storm. But she was spot on. Because I was worrying. I was questioning God. And all of a sudden, a preacher, I was the associate pastor at the Altadena Seventh-day Adventist Church on the conference payroll, you know, actually literally working. I, did, I was responsible for noon prayer meeting. I'd leave my office, drive over to the church, and with all the seniors, I did noon prayer meeting. I did you know, weeks of prayer, crusades, all kind of stuff at the church, you know. I was there for, for a couple of years at least. Uh, before that, I was on staff here at Mount Rubido in this conference. Um, but that really was the most profound thing that could have come to me at the time. Your trials will bring to your view defects you have that you've never noticed. And part of the discomfort of your trial isn't just the trial, it's the realization that you don't have the spiritual mustard you thought you had once you're in the trial. That's one of the toughest things about trials. If, it, if not, it might not qualify as a trial. So the third stanza. Now at this point I just got depressed. My re reputation is ruined. I'm all alone, literally. I went to this lawyer in LA, and, and a secular lawyer, and at this point, I was pressured to resign from the position, which I was actually, at this point, happy to do. They put me on administrative leave. I'd never been in trouble at work. The last time I got in trouble was in, like, second grade. <laughs> and my mother whooped me, and that was it. I was a good kid after that. I said, this woman's crazy. I, I'm going to behave, because I'd rather fight the bullies in the street than come home to this woman. I, 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 <laughs> I hadn't, so I didn't know being on administrative leave was even a bad thing. You know, it was paid administrative leave. I was like, listen, I'll happily stay home and take a check while we figure this thing out. Um, but it was during that time, and I, so, you know, I, I did that, and I resigned. And I, it was funny, the first victory I got, at the time when I resigned, the, the head of HR, who leaned far left, came with the papers. I'd gotten one set of papers from the city manager before about getting my severance, and she came to the meeting with the city manager and myself, with a different set of papers and said, listen, people in the city don't even think you deserve a severance. I said, I haven't done anything wrong. Everything that they're talking about happened, one, these are stuff from before I even started working here, number one. None of it was said while I was working, you know, and the last I checked, we have something in the United States called a constitution. And there's a first amendment that gives me a plethora of rights that are currently being blatantly violated if you try and squeeze me out of my job. And she said, well, I know. 
Yeah, you know, you studied HR in school. You know that what you're doing right now is completely illegal. And she said, well, we're going to give you, we'll give you half your severance. I said, listen, there's a fair few times I got bold. This is one of them. I said, no, you won't. I said, no, you won't. You're going to give me my entire severance. And she said, no, people don't think you should get any of it. You'll get, you can have half of it. And here's the paperwork. This is the only papers I brought. If you want your severance, sign now. I said, no, I got the paper from the city manager giving me my whole severance, and that's the only one I'm going to sign, or I'm going to sue you. That's the first time I ever said that in my life. It feels good to say that, you know. <laughs> I had no idea how I would do it. I, it, I, it didn't matter. I was like, look, as I was, at that point, I'm like, wait a minute now. You know, it's one thing for you to beat up my name, but you start trying to take food off the table, and I mean, you, this is another thing. So they signed the paper giving me my full severance. That's right. And I resigned. <laughs> and, um, but, they, you know, at that point, it was very difficult. Very, very difficult. One of the other things that happened, God has, God is just incredible. In January of 2014, so this all happened April 30th, May 1st was when that story dropped in the LA Times, it was May 1st. In January of 2014, I, um, I received a notification about a job in public health in the state of Georgia. And I was thinking, eh, maybe it'd be better I move back to the South, it's cheaper, it's near the CDC. There were a few reasons why I was tossing around this idea of moving basically outside of Atlanta to the Northwest section of Georgia to be a district health officer. Um, and I'd met the state health officer. I loved her. I thought she was amazing. I think she's now the head of the CDC. Um, she's a brilliant public health mind. She seemed like an amazing person to work for. And so I applied, and I had went through two rounds of interviews by FaceTime, right? Which is how people do stuff now, and instead of flying you all over the place a bunch of times, it makes sense. You do FaceTime. So we, I got the highest. Later on, I found when we got the records, I had the highest by far reviews. They said they'd never find another candidate like me. It, it was overwhelming. If that was that like Thursday that everything dropped, by that like next week, Wednesday, I was in Atlanta. That Tuesday or Wednesday, interviewing in person, final interview in front of the executive staff for the state health department for the state of Georgia. I barely got back home before I got the call that they wanted to offer me the job. And I said, well, and they all told me how much they pay, and I said, that's not enough money. You know, everybody thinks you're crazy. What do you mean? You don't have a, you, everything you're going through, you want more money? I said, listen. I believe God. I, I think I should get a little more money here. I'm going to ask for it. The Bible says you have not because you asked not. So I asked. <laughs> and they gave me the raise before I even started. And I said, look at how God works. He has paved a way out of the tragedy for me, the difficulty. Look how God set it up. I'll transition. Hopefully what happened here won't carry there. Wrong. Remember I said it was Joseph? I was just going from Potiphar's house as a slave to the prison is what was about to happen in the story. And so what happened is when, when that was announced that I was going to take that position, it got into the media again. And again, here's the power of social media and internet. If this was 50 years ago, when I was a kid, I was born in 1970s, it would have been in a local newspaper. It would be very difficult for someone on the other side of the country to really follow it. Not anymore. Once that was released, it got out. The LA Times put it in the paper that I got this job. And that's one of the reasons why the HR director was like, you don't need you, the job came up. But as I was there dealing with the HR director and the city manager, and she's trying to haggle me for my severance, the city manager was called. The LA Times has just confirmed that the state of Georgia is pulling the job from him. Why did they pull the job from me? Because forces in Southern California said, we will follow him wherever he goes. 
He will not work there. We have friends in Georgia, and they called to Georgia. I was on the nightly news there, too. I was on the nightly news in L.A. That's actually, they played a clip of my sermon. It's actually a good clip. I, I didn't get too upset. I was like, well, if they're going to play a clip, that wasn't a bad one. And they did the same thing in Atlanta. Controversial hired, and they just started rattling off all this stuff against me. And I'm like, whoa. I went back and forth with them. They actually asked for my sermons. And I sent them sermons to listen to. Because the guy, his wife worked for Charles Stanley, the guy that I was dealing with. So they were Christians, which a lot of people thought I'd be safe in Georgia. Um, so I sent them the sermons. The next day I was fired. The next day they, they, they pulled the job from me. I was just, just landed at JFK and I was going to be speaking at um, the Haitian American Youth Federation for the for Northeastern Conference. And, um, when, and they forgot to hang the phone up when they left me the message while I was on the plane telling me that I wasn't going to get the job. So they tr I don't know if they forgot or if they didn't know how to use a phone, but they didn't hang up the phone, and I could hear them laughing at me in the background afterwards. Ha, 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 he'll never work again, whatever, or whatever they said, you know, just mocking me in the background. And that was when I finally broke down and I cried because I said, Lord, this is too much. You know, at this point, I'm done. I mean, we're, you know, all the years of school, all the years of experience, all of the training, all of the, you know, I wrote a dissertation for crying out loud. That's a horrible thing to go through, <laughs> right? And now, nothing. And I just sat there and I wept before, and I think, I think, I think it was before, the, I'm pretty sure it was before I went to go speak at this, this federation, because I gave my testimony at the, up until that point at that federation, and a beautiful little Haitian lady with her beautiful French accent, laid hands on me and started praying. Let me tell you something. I could feel the Lord working when that woman was praying. And I was in such a state of depression at that point because I was like, this is just not fair. You know, no one is recounting anything, any of your good. They are simply, and of course, one of the people, at Betty Cooney, who suffered along with me because she was blamed for some stuff that didn't happen. That, you know, church folk got mad at her for stuff that really wasn't her fault at, at, at Southern California College, a wonderful Christian lady. Early on in the process, when I was like, Betty, because she was like over, over, the, over the media stuff at the conference, I said, Betty, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm in trouble. She said, she said, Eric, I listen to your sermons. Your sermons are good sermons. She said, the problem is spiritual things are spiritually discerned. When you take this stuff out of context and you put it in the secular world, you're, this is what's going to happen. And she was spot on. It really was nothing to do with anything. I mean, you, you know, you do it to pretty much almost anyone. But this stage of the thing really is where the trial and the difficulty came in. Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, O you that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That's literally almost what I heard someone say to me. Well, if your God is so real, he'll get you out of this. You delighted in the Lord. Let's see God get him out of this. 
For it was not an enemy that reproached me, for I could have borne that. Neither was it he that hated me that ma did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was you, a man, mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. It hurt because early in the process, when the statement was released in, in the Pasadena Star News from the church, um, the day before I'd called one of my friends, someone I knew, I'd done the, the men's retreat for his church, and he worked for the council for GC. I called him, and I was like, dude, what's going on? I mean, I'm, I'm going to need some help. And he said, look, we're going to distance ourselves from you. And this is the psalm that came to me. This was the psalm I read that night. It was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. And folks sent me some stuff from the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White says, troublous times are before us. In many instances, friends will become alienated. Without cause, men will become our enemies. The motives of the people of God will be misinterpreted, not only by the world, but by their own brethren. The Lord's servants will be put in hard places. A mountain will be made of a molehill to justify men in pursuing a selfish, unrighteous course. The work that men have done faithfully will be disparaged and underrated because apparent prosperity does not attend their efforts. She says, by misinterpretation, these men will be clothed in dark vestments of dishonesty because circumstances beyond their control made their work perplexing. They'll be pointed to as men that cannot be trusted, and this will be done by members of the church. God's servants must arm themselves with the mind of Christ. They must not expect to escape insult and misjudgment. They will be called enthusiasts and fanatics, but let them not become discouraged. God's hands are on the wheel of his providence, guiding his work to the glory of his name. Last one from her, when the religion of Christ is most held in contempt, when his law is most despised, then should your, our zeal be the warmest and our courage and firmness the most unflinching. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when the champions are few, this will be our test. This line saved me. At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. When the time of trouble comes and folk turn on you, you're literally going to have to use the energy of their failure to propel you in Christ. Their cowardice must make you more courageous. Their treason, the fact that they turn their back on you, must make you more loyal to the cause of God. At no point in this whole thing will I ever disparage this denomination. I will never do it because I understand it's a ship. And I understand that the ship is going to get where it's going. And I understand the enemy is trying his best to sink the ship. And I don't want my experiences to work against the ship Zion. I'd rather I be destroyed than the ship be destroyed. Because the ship's got to get there because we're all on the ship. And this became one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. But he himself, speaking of Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I knew I was getting into a dark place when literally that was my prayer. I was never suicidal, never want to hurt myself, but I was very happy. I said, Lord, if you want to just take me now, 
go on ahead and take me. Because what I'm going through is unbearable. There are aspects of the stories I can't even tell you. But to be that alone all of a sudden, that isolated, when you really did nothing wrong, if the preaching of the gospel and having an opinion on things is wrong, then America is wrong. The founding fathers were all wrong. The Constitution should be burned and never used again, Not, nor the Bill of Rights and its 10 edicts, nor the Declaration of Independence. They are all wrong. The reason the remnant church of God was placed in this country to be born was because of those documents and the culture of freedom that this country affords all of us. God knew what he was doing in 1844 when the great disappointment happened in New England. He knew what he was doing a, a few years later. A small band of people came together to start this denomination. God knew what he was doing because he knew he had put it in a place where they would be safe to nurture and grow. There was nowhere else on earth that the church really could have been put. And why? It was because of the words of the documents that established this great nation. And when you think about disparaging the country or speaking bad about the country, as we have a right to do, you have to remember America does not guarantee your happiness. It guarantees your pursuit of it. And the documents are there for that. The reason you have a civil rights movement in this country and not a bloody revolution are those documents. Dr. Martin Luther King could simply stand before the country, hold up the documents and say, this blank, this is what he said, this, we are here with a blank check that was written with the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. We have a blank check that you owe a portion of your population. Sign the check. And there was no way you could argue against it. There was no argument against it because the documents do it. And the reason we must fight for religious freedom, and, and even when you don't, aren't a member of the religious class of the other individual, you have to fight for their religious freedom. Because their religious freedom is your religious freedom. Their freedom to have no religion is your religious freedom. And it all began to come alive. And I said, Lord, just take me. But God, huh, God is powerful. I was at my best friend's house, Derek. I, was, I mentioned him earlier, right here in Ukaipa. I was sitting on the couch with him at his house, and he was sitting on the other couch, and he, you know, you know your friends are hurting for you, and they can't do anything. There's a look that comes over the people who really love you face. And I have some of them in here today, people like Lincoln Maynard and his wife, and, and Michael and his wife, people who I know love me, Rodney and his wife are here earlier. People I know love me and, I, and know me personally. And you could see they, they're paining with you, but they have no power to step in and fix anything. And Derek had that look on his face. He turned to me and said, E, what are you going to do? You have no job. What are you going to do? I sat there for two seconds. I said, Lord, I said, I said D, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, but you know, I always wanted to be a missionary. And I always wanted to go to Guam. He's like, Guam? I was like, have you been to Guam? I was like, no, I've never been to Guam. I just wanted to go to Guam. They called me at Loma Linda years ago, but because of my career, I could never get the time to go be a missionary. And he's like, oh, okay. Within 30 minutes, three zero minutes, I get an email from the physician recruiter from the Guam Seventh-day Adventist Clinic. Dr. Walsh, we would love to have you be a, a provider in our clinic in Guam. And it would have taken me months to get a medical license pretty much anywhere else. I got one in like six weeks in Guam. And that was in June. By August, I was seeing patients in Guam. 
Not one day was I ever unemployed. I told you my parents are Jamaican. So I always had three jobs. <laughs> right? Some of y'all remember that old skit from In Living Color. Um, I always had three jobs. And it's true. I lost that job. I started moonlighting more at one of the urgent cares where I was moonlighting. I still had to pass three jobs. I was able, I never, never one day did I not have a job. Not one. I lost jobs, but God always made sure I had a job. And I was able to go to Guam. And let me tell you something. The Chamorro people who are the indigenous people of the island of Guam call Guam the rock. <laughs> and it was the rock. I was able to hide myself in the cleft of a rock. For 11 months I was there, and man, it was, it was like I was on vacation. I was hiking and snorkeling, stuff I had never done in my life. You know, people from my neighborhood were snorkeling. I was snorkeling up a storm, <laughs> having a good time, seeing all, naming fish. I looks like a barracuda. I don't know what a barracuda looked like. It doesn't look like one. <laughs> hiking up in the mountains and into waterfalls. And Are you hearing what I'm saying? God doesn't just leave you in it. He will cover you. He will find a way to circle back around and pick you up when the weight gets to be too much to bear. That's what he does. Psalm 25 says unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without a cause. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, Psalm 25, 15. For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. You notice how David weaves forgiveness and repentance with deliverance from trial? Because part of the process I was going through was God really turning up the pressure to purify my character. Job, in the beginning of his book, is called perfect. Yet by the end of the book, you can see that even Job had spiritual growth by the time God starts speaking at the end of the book. God allows the trials for even when we are doing well, God wants to make us more perfect. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Oh, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. I would read these Psalms over and over and over again as the medicine to keep me sane. And I would go back with David as he was being hunted by Saul and the, and the pain that David was going through. I would feel it as I read the Psalms and understand that the same way God delivered David, he would eventually deliver me. I didn't know how, which is the next stanza. There was a battle that had to happen. So Georgia had gotten rid of me. I'd already settled with Pasadena and they made me sign an airtight legal document so I couldn't sue them. So I guess my threat worked. Um, and I didn't know where to turn. People were saying, you have legal recourse. They can't do that. It violates the Constitution. I, I couldn't turn to the Religious Liberty Department here. So I was like, where, Lord, where do I go? By this time, I started getting calls from people that work in religious liberty offices around the country trying to get, take my case on. Because once they started looking into it, they were like, bro, they can't do this. But then I was like, okay, Lord, I don't know how to pick a law firm. So I said, Lord, I need a sign. So I said, Lord, who, 
everybody else is calling and trying to make a deal over the phone. I said, the first firm that calls and is willing to fly to Los Angeles and take me to lunch will be the firm that I choose. <laughs> if you're going to ask the Lord, you might as, you know, I want a free lunch. I mean, you know, <laughs> might as well. And let me tell you something. A group called First Liberty out of Dallas, Texas, my attorney, Jeremy Dice, and, and Hiram, I forget Hiram's last name, one of the senior attorneys, Jeremy called and said, listen, Dr. Walsh, we've been following your case on, online and, uh, and in the news. We want to take your case on. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> and they were like, yes, and we will fly to Los Angeles and take you to lunch. It's funny because I was just at their conference, their fundraiser the last few days in D.C., and when I told that story, I said, you didn't even realize when you were flying out, I, you'd already met the standard. God had already told me that you were who I was going to go with, did you? You were there trying to convince me for like an hour and a half, and I was just letting y'all talk, but I'd already known that this was the group that I was going to go with. When I played for them the voicemail of them laughing in the background when they fired me, the attorney said, they clapped their hands, one of them almost did a jig. He said, this is, he, and I said, what, what, what's, why are you so happy? He said, every case we take that God is going to win for us, there's always some weird piece of evidence like that. We need to take your case. While I was in Guam, they were working on it. We went to the EEOC and got shot down, which may not have been that surprising considering everything that was going on and, and every, in the climate of the country and everything. And then we had to get permission to actually sue the state of Georgia. I've never actually sued anyone, and as a doctor, the whole lawsuit thing is kind of problematic. I think most doctors have some allergic reaction to the whole thought of lawsuits. Um, and they had to convince me to actually do this, and I didn't want to do it, but they explained to me, and, and they had to do it through two iterations, um, why this was so important. What they explained, so that you get the religious freedom, religious liberty re uh, relevance of this case, because as Adventists, we don't fully understand that. What they explained to me is that many, most denominations in the country, their pastors are bivocational, meaning that they work in the parks and rec department all week, they work at a restaurant, busting tables, or they manage a restaurant, or they work at a company, or they own a company even, during the week, Monday through Friday. And then on Sunday, these guys mount pulpits all across the country and lead their church. What they said to me is, if it is allowed to stand, that stuff that you did in your private Christian life disqualifies you from your job, especially a job with the government where the constitutional standards are even higher. He says, we will have a problem keeping every bivocational pastor in this country employed if anyone ever goes online and finds anything in their sermon they don't agree with. He said, you don't understand the ramifications of this. He, and he said, I know yours, are the, they studied our denomination. They said, I know your denomination, they pay your pastor. I said, they don't pay them that well, really. But, but they pay them and they get benefits. He said, many denominations, that's not the case. He said, so you've got to fight to protect that. So we, we went in and, and, and went to do the, the case and the EOC shot us down. I went to Atlanta. We announced that we were going to do the whole thing. And the whole thing, every time I do a media thing, poof. All the enemies would come back out, start calling your names again, start decrying religious liberty and freedom as an excuse for bigotry in the country and all these different types of things. And so we went through the first iteration, we lost. So then we went to go to do the suit. We got permission from the government to sue the state of Georgia because you actually have permission to sue a government agency or entity. And they had to name the names of the people, which I was really uncomfortable with. I didn't want to sue anybody. Like, um, but they convinced me and we did it. 
And I had to go, and they, then they went through the discovery phase. Law is very different from medicine, I learned. And so we had to turn over all this stuff to them. They long list. On the list was they wanted every sermon I had ever preached, including, according to my attorney, any napkin. If I was sitting in a restaurant and got a, and got a sermon idea and wrote it on a napkin, I need to turn over the napkin. If I have Bibles where I've written sermon notes in the margins, those Bibles have to be turned over. Any contract I've ever had with any church. I mean, in the, it, was a, it was about three major things. What bothered me most was, and our turns most was the sermons. But again, they danced a jig. I found it out later. I wasn't with them when they danced this one. But they danced a jig, and he said, this is it. And he said, we're going to leverage this because this is so wrong and egregious. Here they fired you for your religious beliefs. Now they're going to, what, scrutinize your religious beliefs? They, they can't do that. And so they said, we're going to go to the state capital of Georgia, and this was all over the news, and we're going to set up a press conference, and in, around the corner at the governor's front door and the state attorney's front door, we are going to have a press conference, and you're going to tell them that you are not turning over your sermon. I said, shouldn't you say that? <laughs> nope, you're going to say it. And sure enough, but here's what the difference was this time when God brought me forward. People from every denomination, all over the South, missionary Baptists, Southern Baptists, you know, all kinds of people came, and all kinds of organizations, Christian organizations, none of which were Adventists, came and stood by me. And this time when I went in front of that podium, there were 40, 50 people on steps behind me as I stood and I said, no, this is unconstitutional. I will not, in whatever the speech I gave, I will not turn over my sermons. That night... 40,000 people signed petitions in my support against the state of Georgia and, and for me not to turn over the, 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 the sermons. The governor's phone, the attorney general's phone ran off the hook. They, could, if they hung up the phone, it was ringing. They hung up the phone, it was ringing. It, they were going bonkers and did not know what to do. And again, poof, it exploded. But this time, it was very different. For the first time, it was like the wind was in our sails. We had the momentum. If you watch sports... Of course, it's like all about momentum. The momentum turned in our favor. And I went back home thinking, okay, oh, it's all over. God has shown up. But like Joseph, that's why this analogy works so well. Remember Joseph helped the, um, the butler? And he said, oh, go, listen, man, go tell Pharaoh, please. Your boy's down here. He's innocent. Go, go, go get him. Get me out of jail. Joseph waited in jail how long? Two years before he was called again. It was like four weeks of silence after that event. And I was saying to God, shouldn't this be over? So one December morning last year, I was on my knees agonizing with God, and I said, Lord, I need this to be over now. This thing is stressing me out so much, I can't deal with it anymore. While I was saying my morning prayer, the phone vibrated. I finished my prayer, I picked it up, and there was a text from my attorney to call him. And I was like, every time they'd ask me to call him, thank you. Every time they'd ask me to call them, I'd always get nervous. And I called, and Roger said, Roger Byron, one of the attorneys that helped, was, was defending me, said, he said, um, Dr. Walsh, I have some news. And I was like, okay. They want to go to mediation now. I had been asking all along, don't they want to settle? We had all these documents in the public records request showing that they'd like colluded, new word everybody knows now, colluded against me on this position. I used it before, you know. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, don't, but they never did. After, month after that event, 
they wanted to go to settlement, to mediation. And I said, what does that mean? He said, they may want to settle. That's what, the way he said it. I said, Roger, you don't understand. I was just on my knees asking God to end this thing. He said, well, what you need to know is that then God answered your prayer yesterday because they actually called us yesterday and told us this, but because you're on the West Coast, I waited till this morning to call you. <laughs> and you know what the Bible verse that came to mind? Before you call, I will answer. Before I'd ever even prayed the prayer asking God for deliverance, he had already done it. And what ends up happening is that we go into that mediation, and, it's, and I, of course I thought this was going to be some thing from TV drama. I'd watched all these law shows, and there was going to be all this suspense. Nope. My attorneys went for a run that morning. They laughing, having a good time. I'm fasting and praying. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, no, I don't want no breakfast, man. I'm fasting, bro. I'm fasting and praying here. Some things come only by prayer and fasting. You know, they're, having, they're laughing. Having, I'm like, why aren't they more serious? But I can't say anything. I'm too nervous to even talk, talk about anything. And then the guy, who does, the guy who's doing the mediation comes in. He's all friendly and happy and then they're like, well, you have to, we have to go to the other, to, to a room where there's a giant long table. You're going to have to sit across from them. And they said, Dr. Walsh, do you want to say anything? Nope. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> Every time in this process, when I was given an opportunity from NPR or local TV stations or newspapers to defend my own name, I heard a voice whisper in my ear, like a lamb led to the slaughter is dumb. So said he not a word. This time I was like, listen, Lord, this thing has been working. I'm not about to start defending myself now. That's what I have attorneys for. And I said, I don't want to say anything. And we went in there. And let me tell you what was crazy. Every one of their attorneys, Dr. Walsh, it's great to meet you. Shaking my hand. Even their chief counsel shook my hand. Dr. Walsh, it is an honor and a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Ain't y'all supposed to be mad at me or something? Like, isn't that the way this all works? We sat across from them, and my lawyer started talking about how this was so public and how you damaged his reputation. And they said, well, but, da 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 and they were going back and forth. 10, 15 minutes maximum, we were out of there. Then they started doing this funny thing. I know you do this in real, and this is how law has worked out. They start setting up a piece of paper back and forth between the rooms with amounts of how much the settlement should be. That's it. And the first amount they wrote and sent to us was six figures. Again, they did a jig, my attorneys. They said, if this is what their first offer is, they are here to settle. Dr. Walsh, you will leave with a settlement today. It's over. And we went back and forth a few times. The numbers went up, 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 and up. The, how much the final amount one went was public. I didn't get that much because lawyers take their share. And by the time Uncle Sam and, and Governor Brown take their share, um, <laughs> probably won't be much of anything left. But that wasn't why I did it. Believe me, I'd rather had no, they could keep that money and keep me out of what I went through. Um, but at the end, it was interesting because they said, they were like, this is their final offer. They're stuck at this number. And got, the media said, is there anything else you guys want? Do you want them to go up again? And one of my attorneys, Jeremy, said, tell him he wants an apology. I said, yeah, I want an apology. <laughs> <laughs> and it went back over to the other room, and they came back and they said, they will not give you an apology. That is off the table. They'll give you another $25,000 if you don't take an apology. <laughs> I said, I don't need no apology. <laughs> I'm perfectly good. $25,000, the best apology I ever got in my life. I wish everybody said, I'm sorry with $25,000. I'm good. Turns out, as we were praying, the mediator prayed with us at the end. The chief counsel for the other side came in just as we were praying. 
And the verse of Psalms that came to my mind is from Psalm 23, where it says, he prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. I was worried, and God was setting a table. And the servers were my enemies. That's the way God does things. That's the way he does it. Psalm 35, plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. These are the Psalms I read before I went in there. Fight against them that fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for mine help. Draw out also a spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. And say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt. Let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord persecute them. For without cause have they hid for me their net in a pit, which without cause they have digged for my soul. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so would we have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion together that rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor that magnify themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Amen. And the rest of this came to me. And my first answer, no man stood with me, but all forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, verse 17 is what a verse that now was relevant. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, but that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The final stanza is real quick. It's just the stanza of victory. Blessed be the Lord, because he hath heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song will I praise him. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings, and hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. I love the Lord, because he heard my voice. And my supplications, because he has inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. Last couple of slides are just postludes from the spirit of prophecy. Prophets and Kings, page 578, Ellen White says, God has a purpose in sending trial to his children. He never leads them otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose that they are fulfilling. You would never choose to go a different way than the way that God sent you if you knew the end from the beginning. Let me tell you something. I got back, I got a better job than I've ever had financially. God took care of me on every angle. It says it is the triumph of the Christian faith that it enables its followers to suffer and be strong, to submit, and thus to conquer. It is the triumph of the Christian faith that enables its followers to suffer and be strong, to submit, and thus to conquer. Last slide, do not dishonor God by words of repining, Spirit of Prophecy says, but praise him with heart and soul and voice. Look on the bright side of 
everything. Do not bring a cloud or shadow into your home. Praise him who is the light of your countenance and your God. Do this and see how smoothly everything will go. I'll give you that testimony. Like I said, it's not easy to share. Every time I go through it, I have to relive a lot of pain. There's a whole lot of this I, can't, I don't even say, can't even say, except to tell you that God is real. And some of you young people that the, the pressures of the culture of the world are on you and, and it's so easy to want to flip you know, the script and, and kind of take on the ways of the world, I'm telling you that the God of this church is real. Amen. And if you just stay firm, if you stay on the ship, like I said, first service this morning, God will take all of us where he wants to take us. He will guide the ship into the port. And God has opened up opportunities and doors. I, I was asking him at lunch for prayer um, because now, you know, I've been, I'm, God has set me up so well, but I'm like, Lord, I, I, I now want more ministry opportunity. I want my medical work to be more ministry oriented, and I want to be able to preach this gospel. I've been all over the world this year, England, South Africa, all over the U.S. I'm scheduled to go to Australia, South America next year, Cuba in a few weeks. People all over the world want to hear this testimony. And so I just ask that you keep me in prayer. You don't need to give me anything. People are like, well, what can we? Your prayers are what got me through in the first place. When I was laying on my face those first few days, folk were praying for me. And literally at times I could feel the weight of the pressure of what I was going through lifting. And the Lord would whisper in my ear, people are praying for you. And I could feel the weight lift. So I'm asking for your prayers. That's really what I'm asking for. That God would show me which way to go and to set me on the right path. He is coming soon. And what happened to me is going to happen to a lot more people. And, and you're going to see that over the next few years. It's going to happen far more rampantly as people just become more intolerant and prejudiced. Not because of how you look, which is what I was growing up to think that that's what was going to matter. It's not about how you look. It's about what you believe, which means all of us are about to become a minority. Actually, already are one. And we are going to be persecuted based on that. I'm going to ask young ladies to come forward before we, we, we close in, in prayer and just sing, um, Will Your Anchor Hold?